you'd like to uh, turn to uh, John chapter 20, it would be useful to have the Bibles open. And I'm just going to say another prayer before we begin. Lord God, we uh, praise and thank you uh, for your son Jesus Christ, uh, for what he did when he came to live on this earth, when he died and he rose again. We praise and thank you tonight also for your word, which tells us about him, allows us to meet him, allows us to learn about him and put our faith and trust in him. Lord, as I speak this evening, may my words be clear and may we be challenged in our hearts to put our faith uh, either for the first time or afresh in you. Amen. Well, as Alan says, sometimes the most uh, familiar passages are the ones that leave you scratching your head uh, a bit more than normal. And uh, annoyingly, that is the case with uh, this, uh, this text about uh, Thomas. Um, what I want to do tonight, uh, in very broad terms, is talk about a few things. Uh, what Thomas thinks, what Thomas says, what Jesus says to Thomas, and what John writes for our benefit. So really just going to follow the story through what Thomas thinks, what Thomas says, what Jesus says to Thomas, and what John actually writes for our benefit. But first, before we get into that, imagine, if you will, a church uh, near where you live, or, or perhaps this church, if you live in this parish, um, has decided to uh, do a mission. And as part of that mission, they've decided to buy uh, lots and lots of copies of the, the Jesus video. I don't know if you've seen it, uh, which goes through the life of Jesus, I think, from, the, uh, from Luke's Gospel. Uh, now, and, and they're going to put it through the doors. It's a wonderful thing. So people can watch the video in their own homes, and then maybe the church will go back in a few weeks' time and just ask them questions about it, ask how they got on with it. Now imagine if there's a mix-up in the DVD suppliers, and instead of seeing the Jesus film, uh, the, uh, the DVD that was put through the doors was actually The Passion by Mel Gibson. Gibson. And that was put through the door of every parish, uh, through every door in the parish instead. I wonder what would happen. Well, apart from lots of complaints about churches putting video nasties through the letterboxes of people's houses. Well, I think perhaps if people don't know much about Jesus, if they don't if they haven't heard much about Jesus, then I think after watching the mission, they'll probably be left feeling pretty much like Thomas was feeling at the beginning of our, our passage this evening. They'll be left thinking, in basic terms, that this Jesus of Nazareth is dead. I mean, who could survive all that flogging, that crucifixion? I mean, there's no doubt about it, was it? I mean, after going all through that, Jesus was dead. He was gone. He was finito. He was obliterated from this earth. And therefore, so what? Why have I just watched this DVD? Why has this church bothered to give it to me in the first place? Well, just look uh, at verse 24. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, in fact, the original says, kept on telling him, we have seen the Lord. So why do they have to keep on telling him? Well, because in, Jesus, in Thomas's mind, Jesus was dead. In Thomas's mind, Jesus was dead. There was no doubt about it. It doesn't look like Thomas had actually been at the crucifixion, but he probably heard about it, and he'd probably seen other crucifixions 
uh, during his lifetime. So he would have known about those lashes that would have torn the skin from Jesus' back. He would have heard about the humiliation as Jesus was marched through the streets of Jerusalem carrying the crossbar on his back. He would have known about the nails that went into his wrists and to his feet and the spear that went into his side. So it's perfectly reasonable for Thomas to think that Jesus was dead and he would never see him again. Just as if we received that, uh, the passion film for our letterbox and we didn't know anything about Jesus, then we would assume that Jesus of Nazareth is dead. But what if you had some friends who kept on insisting that Jesus is alive after all of that? As Thomas did when the disciples kept going on telling, telling him that they've seen Jesus, they've seen the Lord. Well, basically, you'd think they're completely off the trolley, wouldn't you? You'd think your friends had lost it. There's this wonderful uh, uh, book about evangelism that is called, I think, My, My Best Friend Has Turned Mad. Referring to a Christian believer who wants to tell his friend about Jesus, but his friend just thinks he's mad. I mean, my, my, my sympathies here are with Thomas. We don't know much about Thomas, except uh, as he appears in John's, uh, John's Gospel only about three times. Uh, in chapter 11, uh, Jesus telling the disciples that because Lazarus has just died, they have to go back to Bethany. And Thomas realizes that Bethany is so close to Jerusalem, they're going to go into danger. They've just come away from Jerusalem because of the danger that Jesus was in. And here's Jesus saying, no, but Lazarus, my friend, has died. We must return to Bethany. So whilst the other disciples were busy urging Jesus not to do this foolish thing, it is Thomas who says in chapter 11, verse 16, no, let us go also, that we may die with him. Let us also go, that we may die with him. You see, he loved Jesus. He was no coward. He was pragmatic, yes, but he was also decisive. I mean, there was no nonsense about him. Let's go and die with him. Later in chapter 14, we see Jesus trying to comfort his disciples about death, saying, in my father's house there are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Jesus says, you know what I'm talking about. I'm going to my father's house. But no nonsense Thomas turns around to him and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Show us the way. And it's this comment that elicits from Jesus probably one of the most famous statements that Jesus ever made. It's when Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Thomas is no nonsense uh, person in Jesus' life. Not the sort of person you really want to wrap around, maybe. Let's go and die with him then. Not very optimistic. Not bundle of laughs. But he gets from Jesus this amazing statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas is missing uh, from the crucifixion scene. Like most of the disciples, he's run away somewhere. He's hiding. And it looks like he prefers to be alone all of that weekend, since he's not with the rest of the disciples when they get together on the Sunday evening. After all, what's the point of meeting together? After what happened on Friday, Jesus is dead. And the only surprising thing to Thomas was that he wasn't dead too. The other disciples weren't dead with Jesus. So that's, I think, what Thomas is thinking. So when Thomas says in verse 25, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it. It's not really a surprise, is it? 
It's a bit gory. And I just hope that Thomas is going to wash his hands before he puts his hands into the wound. It's not very nice. But what Thomas wants is incontrovertible evidence that there is a link between the person who died on the cross on the Friday and the person who the disciples have been seeing during the course of the week. You see, Thomas, in a way, was the epitome of the 21st century scientific man. He wanted to see proof. He wanted to collect evidence. He wanted to carry out tests to show that this is indeed the one and the same man who has died and has risen again. And in that sense, he was like the great majority of people in this country. With their post-enlightenment modern worldview, uh, they, they would be standing alongside Thomas, unless I can see that the hand holds in his hands and in his side I will not believe. And by the way, every Muslim would also be Thomas. They would say Jesus is just a dead prophet. And Buddhists, I mean, they're fairly easygoing, aren't they, Buddhists? But the Buddhist council in Myanmar just about 20 years ago at the end of last century said what the Christians are preaching that Jesus Christ has died on the cross to redeem the sinners of the world with his holy blood is totally false teaching. The real truth is that Jesus Christ was defeated in his mission, works in his mission work and has paid for his own wrongdoings by getting executed and shedding his own blood. You see, the Buddhists are saying, end of story, Jesus is dead. You see, the world and its religions are all against us on this one. They think that us Christians are slightly crazy, slightly off our trolley. They're with Thomas and they're against us. They say Jesus was an interesting man. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was crucified. End of story. Nobody survives that kind of death. And I think if we were to think about it, that is probably what our friends and our family our neighbours and our work colleagues are thinking as well. You see, they're probably with Thomas at this stage. They may have heard some Bible stories at school. They may have seen Mel Gibson's film. Jesus was a good man, but he's a dead man. End of story. So is it any wonder that they don't do anything about it? I mean, what would we do for a dead man? You see, at this point, Thomas's faith hinges on this one point – is Jesus alive or dead? It really mattered to him. I mean, after all, he had already trusted in Jesus. He'd followed him for three years. He'd gone around with him. He'd seen the miracles being fulfilled. He'd seen the healings. He'd believed in those things. He'd also heard Jesus' teaching. He'd heard about the golden rule. He'd heard about love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He'd heard about peace and justice and care for the poor and the sick. He believed in all of those good principles. And, of course, there are people around today, Christian ministers, supposedly, who would say that that is sufficient. It's sufficient just to believe in those principles. We don't really know, they'd say, whether Jesus really rose from the dead or not. It's just the spirit of the thing that matters. The spirit of Christianity is love, justice, and peacemaking. That's what makes us Christians. Somebody told me at Easter time they'd been away at Easter. And the, and the vicar there in the church they visited on holiday was saying exactly that. They said, we don't know whether Jesus really rose or not. It's the spirit of Christianity that matters. Whilst members of his congregation were quietly seething in their pews. But believing in good moral principles, I mean, it can change people's behavior for a while. 
It can change our opinions and, and even our priorities in life. It can control our excesses and limit bad behavior. But you only do so much for a dead person and his principles. It can't change our hearts. The principles weren't enough for Thomas. He believed those, he had those. But without Jesus, he didn't even want to meet the other disciples. Jesus was the only way that Thomas was going to change his heart, having a relationship with Jesus, with the living Jesus. Thomas knew he needed Jesus in his life. Now, fortunately, or unfortunately for Thomas, as we've seen, he had some pretty crazy friends who kept on telling him that Jesus is alive. We have seen the Lord. And despite managing to avoid their company for most of the weekend, his crazy friends had dragged him along to this meeting on the following Sunday evening. It's interesting that, isn't it? Sunday to Sunday, Sunday evening. It's almost like Sunday evening services is the first service of Christian service uh, that, that existed. So what did Jesus say then? Well, this meeting got weirder and weirder, didn't it? Because in verse 26, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, as we heard from Alex last week, in the same way, peace be with you. Just as Alex explained, happened exactly the same the week before. But then Jesus did something different. He turned to Thomas and he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And this is the first amazing thing. You see, Jesus knew what Thomas had been thinking all along. He knew what Thomas's objection to the gospel was. He knew what Thomas's objection to having faith was. He wanted to see and touch. And I think Jesus makes this repeat appearance one week later, out of mercy for Thomas. He just wants Thomas to be able to see and touch. He wants to give him that opportunity to stop doubting and believe. And it's only when Thomas sees him and he says those things that Thomas does stop doubting and believe. And the second amazing thing is what Thomas says. He cries out. He says, and this is just an amazing, awesome recognition that Jesus is God. He says, my Lord and my God. My Lord is the language that they use to refer to Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Old Testament. So by saying my Lord, he was, he was almost saying it twice. He was saying my Lord, my God, my God. In other words, Thomas was making this huge leap of faith here. It's a transformation of Thomas. He believed having seen that Jesus was alive. Now at this point, you might have expected Jesus to say, well, well done, Thomas. You've got it. But this is the third amazing thing here. What Jesus actually does in 29, verse 29, is he gives Thomas a mild rebuke. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So why is that? Well, sometimes uh, when we talk about faith, and maybe we're talking to other people, people, say, people might say to us, well, I wish I had your faith. As though faith was something sort of hidden down inside us, some little weird thing, maybe a, a faith gene, something that sort of programs us to believe, to have faith. That's what makes us believe in the first place. Well, Thomas's faith, uh, understanding of faith was not like that. He, he wanted faith based on evidence. It wasn't just a faith gene inside Thomas making him believe. He wanted evidence. He wouldn't believe what people were saying. He wanted to see it for his own eyes and t- touch it with his own hands. And that's good. 
I mean, all of us should really seek reasons for our faith. We really should test out uh, what, what the claims of Christianity are. But where Thomas went wrong was he, he insisted on faith by sight. See, what Jesus is saying to Thomas is that he should have believed, basically, he should have believed his friends. You had maybe up to ten believers, sensible people, friends of yours, people you know and trust, and they were all saying that they'd seen Jesus, that Jesus was alive. You could have come to faith by believing them, Thomas. You could have believed without sight because you had those eyewitnesses. A few weeks ago, my car had to go in for its MOT. It's always a slightly nervous occasion. But on this occasion, everything was okay, I think. Except or, as I was paying my money, the, the tester warned me that one of the tires had a nail in it. And it was always with uh, nails in tires. It was on the corner of the tire, so it couldn't be repaired. If it's in the middle, you can repair it. If it's on the corner, you can't repair it. Now, I actually believed this man that there was a nail on my tire because I felt he was a credible witness. I mean, he was an MOT tester, so he should know about things like that. But nevertheless, having told me all about it in the office, he walked me out into the workshop and he took me to my car and he showed me the wheel that it was on and he showed me where the, t- the nail was in the corner of my tyre, which led to this rather embarrassing conversation that we just had in the workshop before. Oh, yes, there's a nail on my tyre. Oh, yes, and it's on the corner, so you can't repair it, can you? No, you can't. So having seen the tyre, we went back to the office and I finished off paying. You see, I actually believed that he, there was a nail on my tyre before he took me out to the workshop. The only difference out in the workshop, we didn't say anything new, we were just looking at it. I could see it, I could touch it with my own fingers. Now that nail is still in my tyre. And you have a choice, don't you? You can either believe me that there is a nail in my tyre. I mean, I could even show you this certificate, which comes with your MOT, warning me that there is a nail in my tyre. This is written evidence by a qualified person to say there is a nail in my tyre. I mean, I hope that you would believe me, and if you don't believe me, then at least you believe this. Because I hope you would regard me as a reliable witness. And if you don't believe me, well, you probably will, the MOT man. Well, I suppose, like Thomas, after the service, you could insist on me taking you out to Trinity Street and showing you my car, and I can show you the nail in my tyre. But the point is, you don't need to do that to believe, do you? once you have a credible witness telling you that it's true. I mean, I'd love, as a Christian preacher, to be able to say, well, I've got a big surprise for you tonight, folks. Let's just dim the lights and maybe have a, a, a drum roll or something like that. And then in the middle of the room, in the spotlight glare, Jesus himself appeared in person to us all. But unfortunately, I can't do that. You see, that's the real difference, isn't it, between then and now, between Thomas's situation when Jesus did walk into the room and appeared in person to them. And, G- and Thomas could touch him and feel his wounds. And our situation now, where Jesus isn't seen and isn't touched. Because although Christian faith is not believing in possible things without any evidence at all, it is about believing in things without seeing them, without sight. None of us can bring him out here before, before us or before our non-Christian family, friends, neighbours or work colleagues. But nevertheless, we can give them good reason, reasonable grounds for believing. And that is the written testimony 
of the actual eyewitnesses who did see Jesus. And that is what John is longing for us all to check out. That's why the Holy Spirit inspired John to write his gospel. Just take a look at verse 30. Verse 30 says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So let's just have a look at those two verses in a little bit more detail. So Jesus did many signs, many more than John actually could record in his book, verse 30. And he did those signs in the presence of chosen witnesses. And those signs, which have been seen and witnessed, were written down in a book, in God's purposes, written for you and I, who aren't witnesses ourselves. We are the non-eyewitnesses, verse 31. And the purpose of them being written down was so that we would believe in him. In fact, all those signs, even though some are left out, the signs that we have written in that book are sufficient for us to believe in him. And then the purpose of believing in him would be so that we may have life. That's what it says in verse 31. We may have life. And of course, the subject of life in John's Gospel is a whole different sermon in itself, which we won't go into tonight. But it all begins by echoing uh, Thomas's great declaration here, my Lord and my God. You see, when Jesus talks about life, or when John talks about life in in, in, in John's Gospel, he talks about it being connected with Jesus. Just let's have a look at those verses for a minute. In John uh, 1 and verse 4, you don't have to look at Mark, I read. He says, in Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. In chapter 3 and verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, uh, John says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So when we believe in Christ, when we believe in his name, we can have abundant life, eternal life. It's all connected with Jesus. We need to know Jesus to have this life. It is his gift to give us. So when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, the question is, can you trust God to lead you, to be your Lord? You see, many refuse to believe simply because they want to maintain control over their lives. They want to just keep that for themselves. They don't want to give it over to somebody else. The question for us is, will we allow Jesus to be Lord and God in our lives so that he might give you life, an eternal life? Can you live in that happy obedience? So all of these things that John has written down, it's sufficient for us to believe so that we might have life. So Christians... What can you do for your family, friends, neighbours, work colleagues who don't yet believe, who don't yet know Jesus, who don't have a relationship with him, who believe in the fact that Jesus was a good man but dead? What can you do? When in, in one sense, you're a bit like Thomas's friends, aren't you? You're, you're Thomas's bit nutty, crazy friends uh, who, who are just saying all the time, whether you say it in words or whether you say it in your actions, <laughs> we've actually been here tonight, this Sunday evening, is in a sense saying to your friends, I believe that Jesus is alive. I've seen him, in a sense. I know him. I have a relationship with him. I come to church because I want to worship him. I want to pray to him. I want to hear what he has to say for me in my life. So you're saying to your friends, Jesus is alive. 
So hopefully that's going to spark some interest. Hopefully, maybe you might even be able to bring them along to a Sunday evening meeting, as, as Thomas's friends did for him one week after the resurrection. And then what do you need to do? Well, you need, as the, as the video for Christianity Explored said, you need to let the gospel tell the gospel. You need to show them the eyewitness accounts. You need to pick up your, your MOT certificate. But in this case, it's the Bible. And this is the eyewitness accounts. And you need to open up the gospels with them and read through. Maybe you want to invite them to Christianity Explored, which annoyingly is based on Mark's gospel for our purposes, but uh, it's the same principle. Mark's gospel, John's gospel, they both contain eyewitness accounts. So open up the gospels with them. Read the gospels with them. Do it one-to-one with them. Let the gospel tell the gospel. And maybe some of you here haven't yet grasped whether Jesus is alive or not. Maybe that's still a stumbling block for you. Well, I guess you can, uh, you can hear what I say about personal testimony. You can hear what I say about witnesses. And you can choose, if you like, to disagree uh, with them. You can say they were deluded, maybe. You can say their interpretation of events um, was wrong. Although there's very good arguments to say uh, that they're actually very reliable. What you can't do is to just dismiss these eyewitness accounts as mere myths or legends, largely detached from the historical realities of what actually happened. And the Gospels are first century writings. They were written in a few years of the events that they describe by people who had been there on the whole when it happened, or people very close to those people when it had happened. In 2 Peter 1.16, Peter tells us, what was going through their minds of the apostles when they were writing these Gospels. He said, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses. And Jesus says elsewhere that he sent the Holy Spirit precisely so that these eyewitness accounts would be reliably recorded and passed down to us. So, what do we say to our friends? Well, firstly, through our words and our actions, we say, we have seen the Lord. We know him. We have a relationship with him. We speak to him. We enjoy time with our Lord every day. Secondly, we open up the word for them. We open up these eyewitness accounts. We can show them that it's not about emotion or just feelings. It's actually logic. If Jesus rose and if that evidence is true and that he really did rise from the dead, he conquered death, and therefore he's alive today. And if he's alive today, then we can have a relationship with him. And there are millions of people around the world, just like most of us here, who will be able to say, yes, I have a relationship with the risen Lord Jesus. He is my Lord and my God. So let's pray. Lord, there is, um, I think there's nothing more exciting, really, than uh, actually opening up God's Word and uh, helping people to understand it, help people to read it and answer their questions, as uh, some people will be doing in Christianity Explored very soon. Lord, I pray that uh, this wouldn't be a privilege that is kept just for those few who are involved in that course. Lord, I pray that many of us here would have the courage 
to next time when we're in a conversation with somebody about Christianity, when we're in a conversation with somebody about church or the fact that we live our lives slightly differently from other people around us. I pray that we might have the courage to actually pick up the Bible, open it up and say, look, this is where Jesus is described. This is the account of eyewitnesses. This is what really happened there 2,000 years ago. Just look at it for yourself. Examine it for yourself. Does it ring true? Does this evidence stack up? Is Jesus alive or dead? Lord, give us the courage to lead people to ask those questions. Amen.